You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. TNL is a production of Young Clergy Network, a ministry of OKC First Nazarene committed to listening to, collaborating with, and empowering young pastors over at youngclergy.net. If you love this podcast, consider sending us a little love over at youngclergy.net slash donate. Thanks to everyone who's already given. We literally couldn't do this work without you. Today on the podcast, we have Pastor Ryan Haney. He's the youth pastor at South Austin Church in Texas. Thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bolojack, and I'm here with my guest, Pastor Ryan Haney. He's the youth pastor at South Austin Church. Welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here today. So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Yeah, I mean, a great question. I Church of the Nazarene, I mean, has been a tradition that I was that I was born into, like like many people that have been on this show. Some people have said they were blessed to be born into it. Some people struggled with that identity. I was kind of somewhere in between where mm-hmm. I was a fourth generation Nazarene born into the family. My parents were Nazarene pastors in, all over the world. And so I grew up on the mission field with them and then moved back to Oklahoma City and was, you know, became a member of Bethany First Church. Uh, so I was very steeped in the tradition, mm-hmm. but never necessarily developed an appreciation for it until my later years, until actually I graduated high school and went on to went on to college, but I had this weird tension. I was, I was in this tradition and kind of told that I was to be a part, like so many people before me, mm-hmm. uh, but never understood it enough to appreciate what I had been given. Yeah. Well, uh, kind of tell me the story about your calling. How did you end up wanting to be a pastor? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, my parents were missionaries, so I was very aware of uh, ministerial practice from a very young age. I saw, I saw my dad building churches, my mom working on the compounds, doing all these different things in ministry. And mm. when we would move back, I, would, I, I understood my grandparents had been on the board at the church for a long time. I understood what it meant to be a part of the life of the church. But I never really saw myself being a part of that. You know, it was several years when we came back to the States. My my parents uh, went through a divorce, and it you know, it broke me in a lot of ways. Mm. There, there are countless stories out there, more and more every day, about the power that divorce has in kids' lives. Yeah. And I don't want to sit here today and, you know, talk about the the decisions that they made. I, I you know, I don't I'm not upset about the decisions that were made, but I recognize the way in which it impacted my own personal life. And so as I begin to go through middle school and high school, there are all these identity problems that come with what it means to have divorced parents. And you mm. you begin to question your own value as a person because you think that maybe somehow you caused this problem or Maybe it was because of you that things went the way that they did. And so as I begin to tell myself these these ideas more and more, they begin to just kind of spiral out of control. And so mm. when I was in high school, I attended the youth group at Bethany First Church and was very lucky to be a part of a wonderful ministry and was reached out to in a lot of ways, but pushed myself away because I had all these identity issues and all, all these struggles with who I was and didn't feel like I was even worth the time that a youth pastor or a sponsor would want to give me. Hmm. And so pushed people away time and time again and um, got to the point where I just I just gave it all away. I, I had I had run off in so many different directions. I had tried so many different things to fill this void that was in my life to give me value. And I found myself so empty and broken by the time I was you know, 16 years old. 
this, this story that you hear by so many people before. And unfortunately, we continue to hear today. Yeah. But I found myself just empty and broken. And that was, this is, you know, the moment of the moment of salvation for me when I realized finally that I had been told about Jesus all my life. I'd been a part of the Church of the Nazarene for so long. And I'd even felt that God wanted to use me for something, but I didn't know what that was, and I was never willing to give the time to understand what that might be. Yeah. And so I remember when I was 16, 17 years old, just this this night walking around, very very broken and empty, just kind of screaming at the sky because I was upset and angry that that some something had caused all these things. I guess I had figured out at this point that it wasn't me, it wasn't my parents, it wasn't anybody necessarily had done these things to me, but there was some some reason that I all these bad things had happened. I couldn't figure out why and. So I just was angry, yeah. And I remember just falling on the ground, just crying. It was my, it was my most vulnerable state I think I've ever had. Mm. And God just overwhelmed me and said, "Understand that these these things have you know have not put these in your lives for some sort of reason to try to get you to think a certain way or to act a certain way. But I I want to I want to embrace you in these moments. Mm. The world is a broken place and causes all sorts of grief. And there are decisions that are made by people that sometimes impact other people in a negative way." And there are mistakes that are made that have caused the world to be in the way that it is. Yeah. And in that moment, God just came and embraced me. Um, and in that moment, I recognized that God wanted to use me for something larger than myself. And so as I began to continue my time in youth ministry, I saw the ways in which people were reached out to, but also sometimes the people that we, pe- the ways people were not. Mm. And so I recognized that if I was to make any sort of impact in this world, if I, you know, if I was to be sensitive to what God had for me, but that's where I was going to start. Yeah. I was going to start with the people that were often forgotten about the people that were marginalized. And, you know, this would continue to play out into the way that I saw the church, the Nazarene, as I began to understand their story, mm. um, that we we're always from the get go, been about the people that were pushed aside. And so youth ministry kind of became this pretty prevalent theme in my life. So, early on in high school, you know, getting, getting this call and then starting to walk down the road of what that meant. Uh, I began to be plugged into the Church of the Nazarene a little bit more, you know, as I'd meet with my youth pastor and I would go through the licensing process that I've been able to walk students through now. Um, and I started to understand, you know, there's, there's some value to this. This call to ministry is, is even greater being part of this, this family called the Church of the Nazarene. And so I walked through that process, but still held on to this you know, odd amount of resentment because I had been told that I was now a part of this process. Mm. You know, I, I had made the decision to follow what the Lord had for me, but still there was an element of, um, of choosing for me rather than asking me what I wanted to do because I felt like I was now put into this system of the church of Nazarene, not still, still not realizing the value that it had for me in my life. Uh, and so, you know, I obviously be going to BFC. I was very aware of SNU. My parents had gone there. My grandparents had gone there. I was, I was very well steeped in the tradition of SNU. Mm. And so people at school, my academic advisor, um, understood my call to ministry, recognized the importance of that, um, even pushed me on to, to study theology somewhere, but would say comments like, oh, if, you know, of course you're going to go to SNU. And so yeah. from that moment, I realized, like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm going to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. And so this tension that I'd had all my life of I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what God has asked me to do and be faithful to that. Continued to be prevalent um, and continued to manifest in these new ways where I was experiencing tension with the school that had you know, done so many good things for my family. And so I looked at every school 
on the market. I looked at every Nazarene school in the United States, just not knowing a lot about them, just knowing that they weren't SNU. Yeah. And so I went and uh, looked and looked and looked and doors just began to kind of shut themselves. You know, mm. Things didn't work out or the program didn't quite match what I wanted it to or the scholarship money didn't come in in the way that it needed to. And at the end of the day, I just realized maybe SNU wouldn't be such a bad thing. Um, you know, I think maybe the Lord could have something for me here, even though like God had things for my family, my parents and my grandparents here so long ago, that doesn't mean that God can't still have something new and fresh now. Yeah. And so I continued to surrender my life more and more, went to SNU, um, graduated from there in 2015 and had, had an excellent experience there going through their theology program and their internship and interning at uh, Lakeview Park Church of the Nazarene, Lake Overholzer Church of the Nazarene, mm. with some really excellent pastors who let me experience what it meant to do ministry, practice um, preaching and teaching, and flesh out what it really meant to be called to ministry. You know, I'll never forget the one of our first days of Intro to Ministry with Doug Samples. We'd kind of walk that grid and ask ourselves, were we called or were we not called, and were we called to full-time or not full-time? We'd kind of go around the room, and we would, uh, we would decide where we were. And I remember just running to the, the, the very top corner and saying, I'm called full-time ministry. That's where I want to be. Mm. Not really knowing what that meant, kind of saying youth ministry because that had been what I was most familiar with. Right. I remember going there because I was so sold out mm. because for all these years I had just said, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to do what God has for me. And at that moment, I remember saying very plainly, this is, this is what the Lord would have not knowing what it's going to be, but I want to, I want to be sold out. I want to be all in. Gosh, I love that. So kind of tell me about where you went from there. You're at SNU. Yeah. So I was a student at SNU. Like I said, I, I started in 2011 and I started their theology program, came in with, you know, all these ideas, all, all high school kids. The best thing that high school kids know how to do is tell you all the right answers, mm-hmm. um, whether or not they're right or wrong. They, they know what they believe and they know why they believe it. If or there's, you know, sometimes the polar opposites that don't care or don't have any idea. But there's there's those high school students that I definitely fell into that category of the ones that had all the answers. Mm. And so I came into school. Um, I had my, the high school that I had that I had been a part of throughout well middle school and high school was pretty fundamentalist Baptist, and so I'd been raised in that tradition. Kind of you know this ten this odd tension between going to the Church of the Nazarene and kind of understanding, but then every day going to this high school where people were predominantly uh, Calvinist. And so Mm -hmm. already went in with some of these ideas that I didn't understand what they were or what they meant, but I knew what I believed. And so entered into my first theology class my freshman year and already hit with this, you know, this guy named John Wesley. And I was like, well, I've heard his name a bunch. You know, I've been a part of Church of Nazarene, but I don't really know who he is or what he, what he's about. And so I remember moments in which I experienced tension um, where it, the, the system was starting to kind of strip away the things that I believed, not necessarily telling me that I was wrong, but challenging me to ask those tougher questions that I think we become more and more afraid to ask as, you know, as we go through the system because we are afraid because we know that on the other side is going to come some vulnerability and come some reshaping. So as I went through SNU, I began to have those things stripped away by some really excellent professors that challenged me to think um, about the tougher questions. And so as I continued through the program, I began to find myself becoming a lot more Wesleyan than I originally had thought and mm. um, began to be more comfortable with the way that I was answering questions and be more comfortable with the way that then 
fleshed out into my practical ministry. You know, the way that I was able to, to rally around somebody that experienced great loss and to be able to tell them that God wants to be with you in this moment. Um, you know, God is not, is not the creator of all these bad things. God is, is not a vengeful God that is throwing things down upon you that you might learn some bad lesson, but God, God is incarnational and wants to be here with you now. Yeah. So all throughout SNU, you know, I had an excellent experience there. I was involved in lots of different things, really blessed to have some wonderful friends that I still hold um, near and dear to my heart today. Mm. I look back on that time and have great, a great amount of joy in my heart. Mm. There, was, there was that odd tension six months out of college where every college graduate kind of misses the things that happen. But mm. I find myself not too much longer, but a little over two years out now and looking back and recognizing the, the wonderful ways in which that place shaped me yeah. and challenged me not just to think about my faith uh, in my own context, but think about my faith in the context of others. And as I would interact with people on campus that were all very different than me, um, having to learn how to navigate their, their language and learn their language, even though we all spoke English, you know, knowing that when I said one thing, they would understand it in a different way. So mm. the community value of that place had so much more value because I was intentionally learning how to create conversation with people that would never understand fully what I was going to say to them. Oh man, that's great. So um, how did you end up where you are now from that point? Yeah, so I one of my summers, my junior year leading to my senior year, I worked a job for admissions. I was a traveling recruiter. I went around to camps all over the place and you know, it was just kind of this dumb, optimistic kid that said, walked around to every youth pastor at every camp that I went to on the region and said, hey, if you need a youth pastor in a year, give me a call. <laughs> um, we kind of handed out my business card left and right as a joke. And uh, I went to the South Texas district and somebody took me up on it. Mm. I'd given them my card. It was my ninth camp of the summer. And I went back for my senior year and went through you know the first semester and then was hit with the reality. Oh, shoot, I'm about to graduate and I have no idea what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I got this call from um, these youth pastors down in, down at, uh, South Texas at South Austin church. And I said, Hey, would you be interested in coming and doing a summer internship for us? Mm. And just kind of totally thrown off. I had no idea what that would look like. I'd never been to Austin. I, you know, my, my family had grown up in Texas and always wanted me to move to Texas, but I, I had no idea what that would look like. Mm. Then I began to hear a lot about NTS, um, and their programs. And so, was pretty engaged in that system and it kind of felt like I was pulled in both directions, but classic senior in college, you know, wants to lay out all of his options before he decides on anything. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to pick the, you know, you don't want to pick something and then three days later realize there was a better option out there. Mm. So what I did is I kind of laid out all my options. I enrolled, I applied to NTS, I got accepted and for all, you know, all my plans were I was going to go down to Austin, I was going to do a summer internship, and then I was going to go up to NTS and do my, my Master of Divinity. Hmm. Uh, but I graduated college, and still with this plan in mind, I packed all my belongings up in my car. Uh, I had never done this because I had lived five minutes from the place where I had where I'd gone to college. I had never really learned how to pack, hmm. and so I squeezed everything into my tiny little car, and I drove straight south <laughs> for, you know, six and a half hours, and pulled up to this place that was brand new to me, um, began to practice ministry more and more throughout the summer and was, you know, going to plan on going to TS, like I said, but I just felt the Lord calling me to something else. Mm. I had, I had been aware of NTS's distance program, um, 
which has its challenges, but uh, I saw I saw the value in it. And at the end of the summer, they offered me a full time job, and I said, you know, our their youth pastors were kind of at a place they were ready to step out, ready to do something different. Um, it seemed like it seemed like the right time for me to step in and do something new with this church. I really felt like in that moment, the Lord was kind of saying to me. You have two really great options in front of you. You could go to NTS. You could do really great things. Um, you could get your degree pretty quickly up there, or you could stay down here. And this distance program is offered to you. So it was one of those times, almost the more terrifying times, in which the Lord says, "I don't want you to choose." Uh. I'm like, "Oh my word! I like I don't want to choose. Like, just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll I'll do exactly that." Yeah. I'd gotten to the point where I would rather have God just tell me the exact plan that He wanted for me and. But in this moment, it was a new test, a new new challenge for me, where God said, here you go, here's your options. And um, at the end of the summer, I traveled up to Kansas City for one more one more trip, and I met with some professors and chatted with them, and it just seemed very clear that this was the way that, uh, this was the way that I, I wanted to go. And so I accepted the job down here, enrolled in their, uh, their distance program, now do modules and, and video conferencing classes now, and that's how I ended up at South Austin. I love that. Tell, tell me about South Austin. What's it like? South Austin Church um, is a really incredible community. Um, one of the things I love about the Church of Nazarene is its longevity. There are lots of plant churches now, and I, I love those too, but there's something about these communities that have been around for so long. Yeah. And South Austin is no exception. You know, it's been around. This year we're celebrating our 70th anniversary. We've been around since 1947. Wow. Um, and in that time, had just a few senior pastors, but recently have had our senior pastor uh, for the last 45 years. Um, really blessed to have this man um, that has led us so faithfully in so many ways. But not just our pastor, but a lot of our congregants have been with us since the beginning, or been with us since the beginning of you know lots of lots of pivotal points in our in our ministry. Mm. And so, for the very from the very first day that I got here, I recognized that this was a church of stories. Uh, this was a church. Everybody had their own story, but I was convinced that they had a larger story to contribute. And so I would begin to navigate my way around the sanctuary and, you know, walking through the pews with the old green carpet that every church has with the with the wood paneling walls. And I would ask them their stories and I'd begin to hear connections and begin to see every Sunday when I'd walk in, I'd look across the sanctuary and begin to see threads connecting mm. and realize that these people were so much more than just a church community that they really considered themselves family. Mm. And the the beauty I saw in that was that these people stuck 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 it out in the toughest of times. One of the great things about going through our anniversary this year has been pulling out the old record books and looking at old pictures and old stories and seeing the times that uh, were great and then seeing the times that were tough. Yeah. But seeing all the same faces in all those pictures mm. and recognizing that you know the the budgets didn't always get paid or. We were in debt sometimes, or the pews were a little emptier than we wanted them to be, but these people remained steadfast and faithful. Um, and it has been a very humbling experience for me to be a part of such a such a tight-knit community. Hmm. Um, so kind of tell me about your ministry and how it's um, evolved since you've been there. What have you been learning there at South Austin Church? Yeah, absolutely. Um so, you know, a couple of the things about South Austin that are that are important to know is 
this church about 15 years ago started a Spanish ministry, just like most churches. Um, lots, lots of churches, especially in the Church of Nazarene, have, have tried to start this Spanish ministry, bilingual ministry, whatever we want to call it. Mm. Um, so, the, But this church was really firm on um, being unified in lots of ways. So I'll, I'll come back to this here in a little bit. But what that manifested into was the statement that we often hear here is, we're one church in two languages. So mm. we worship in different sanctuaries, we have different services, but we want to be one church. Yeah. I came into this place, took over for youth pastors that have been doing this for you know 20 plus years. Mm. They've really done a phenomenal job leading lots of teens. Uh, there are pictures on pictures and stories on stories, like mm. just continued themes with the, the overall church. But I came into this youth ministry and was just this young kid um, that there, there was tension in the room when, when they announced you know what would happen. There were some parents that were excited, some parents that were nervous. And I remember my very first trip, uh, I was taking kids on a winter retreat. It was just a few months after I'd started. And this parent looked at me and said, hey, what adults are going on the trip? And I said, well, I'm going. And you know, I'm taking one of our college sponsors. Uh, and they said, no, 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 but like, what adults are going? <laughs> I just remember that moment, just kind of laughing to myself and thinking, well, yeah, okay, I have a lot of room to grow here. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot, a lot that I need to earn from these parents because mm. they're letting me drive their children three and a half hours away <clears throat> to this a uh, place in the woods to sing about Jesus and, you know, an, an odd experience that I don't know if I would want to do if I was a parent with this young 23-year-old kid. And, mm. um, so I, when I took over this youth ministry, immediately recognized that I was the polar opposite of everything everybody had been used to. Mm. Um, I was young. I was single. I ne- had not developed any sort of rapport that this ministry had had for so long. Yeah. And so... Uh, I took over the youth ministry and began to begin to work work on that, uh, you know, just pour my heart into it. Uh, one of the interesting challenges when I got here was that the youth ministry met in one of our parsonage parsonages over oh. on the side of our property. Okay. But you know, of course, most churches uh, will, as part of part of uh, salary packages, they'll let you live in the parsonage. But mm. they said, hey, you can live in this parsonage, but youth ministry is also going to meet in there. So, <laughs> for the first year of my ministry, it was a very interesting time where. You know, I can go back with hindsight and critique all the ways that I want to, but the fact of the matter is it happened. I had a year with youth ministry in my house. Wow. Um, worked on property, was a very young, naive kid, didn't understand the ramifications that would have on my life, but mm. uh, did it and learned a lot about the importance of space, the importance of sharing space, uh, and the importance of, you know, bringing people into your homes and what the, what that means to people. So. Mm. My youth ministry now looks pretty diverse. You know, two years later, we've grown a lot. We've changed a lot. A lot of the kids that used to go here either graduated out or, you know, felt felt like they needed to go off to something else. I came into a very old group. So now I find myself in a very young group. Mm. But one of the interesting challenges as well is that I have, since we are, you know, I mentioned we're a bilingual church in a lot of ways. Half my youth group is Hispanic. Um, wow. Most of them, well, all of them would speak English, um, but most of their parents do not. Mm. So I find myself in this moment as this you know, young 23-year-old kid that most of his life grew up in America, now having to learn how to interact with people that don't all speak the same language as you. Mm. So my teens bring all these unique cultural perspectives to them. You know, I've learned the, um, what it means to sit around a table and share a meal with people and the importance that has in some Hispanic cultures and mm. uh, some, some traditions and holidays that I didn't really even know existed. But um, it's brought back lots of memories from my time as a, as a missionary kid and um, brought me lots of joy. But I find myself now in this youth ministry very grateful for 
the traditions that were put in place before me, mm. but also recognizing now that um, we have a lot of work to do if we're going to move forward. Yeah. Well, tell me about um, the challenges. I know you kind of you kind of already mentioned a couple, but what do you find that is um, maybe not what you expected about ministry or about this role in particular? Yeah, so there there are a couple specific challenges that I think of. The first one being the power of tradition. Mm. We all recognize in, in the Wesleyan tradition, it's one of our hallmarks of our interpretation. We we give a lot of value to tradition. Yeah. And I'd always viewed that in such a positive context before. Mm-hmm. So tradition is great. I love you know, I love reading about the past. I love reciting these ancient prayers. I love uh, reading scripture in the way that it was once read or hearing it, you know, through, through oral tradition, things like that. But I never saw how it could be negative. Um, And so I don't want to sit here and, you know, and critique. I love my context. I love my church community, but I'm realizing that tradition can have power for both the positive and the negative. Mm -hmm. So we sit in a place where our church has been around for 70 years. Senior pastor has been around for 45 years. Youth ministry was run by the same people for 20 years. There's there's lots of longevity in this church. Yeah. So with that, lots of traditions, lots of memories, lots of uh, shared experience. So you'll often hear the phrase, well, well, you know, we've we've always done it like this. Or when you suggest something new, well, we've never done it that way before. We've, all, we've always done things in this way. Mm. Now coming in as somebody very different, um, not necessarily better or worse, but just somebody very different, uh, I bring my own set of verbiage and ideas uh, to the table. Yeah. So one of my biggest challenges has been learning, you know, in a, in a bilingual church, you would think that your only main communication challenge is speaking with people who don't speak English. Mm. But I'm realizing more and more through, you know, reading the, the story of Pentecost over and over, I realized that even when people speak the same language, they don't really speak the same language. Mm. Like, when the disciples were sent out, you would imagine that when, when when they were gifted with tongues, like they're speaking different languages, but also maybe they're just also learning better how to speak their language to other people that would never understand them in the first place. That's great. When I say things to my students that speak English, they don't understand it in the way that I would say it because their tradition has taught them to think in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so in the same way on a Sunday morning, you know, I've gotten to preach a few times here. When I say things... What has been really important is me walking around hearing the stories, but not only hearing those stories, but crafting the language of this place. Yeah. So as this church speaks both Spanish and English, amidst that, there are hundreds of languages. Mm. There are hundreds of different dialects in those languages, and there there's numerous amounts of ways that they people will understand one statement. Yeah. So that has been my first and probably most difficult challenge, is learning the language of the people. Mm-hmm. I would say the second challenge for me has been um, has been navigating this, you know, like bilingual uh, bilingual church with with some of the parents that, you know, talking about language a lot, um, even going beyond that to talk about our, our actual communication languages, Spanish and English, um, has been learning how to interact with with some of my families that don't speak English will never learn to speak English or the ones that it's a very broken English. Mm. It's been really good and humbling for me to realize that oftentimes we make this mistake in America that if people can't speak good English or communicate to us, we assume that they are less than, cannot understand the ideas that we have for them, um, or, you know, will not ever understand theology in the way that, you know, us great scholars do. Mm. But one of the great 
things that has come about being here is our, one of our associate pastors who runs our Spanish ministry is very, very bilingual. Um, and I've had the the very wonderful pleasure of, of preaching with him and having him translate for me. Mm. And then having people come up to me afterwards that um, will never speak English and share their heart with me through, you know, through our pastor and have him translate and share the ways in which they understand this theology in some, some such deeper ways than I will ever. Mm. And so it has been very interesting being a part of this church that has so many different stories and now trying to help them find this unified story in all of that. And mm. I think oftentimes the mistake that we make when we have such great stories and such great traditions that we begin to give power to those things. Yeah. And more, we want to give power, but we give too much power to the point where I was reading, um, uh, I was reading Daniel the other day and reading about this, this idol, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar constructs this statue to himself and mm. really, really been convicted by uh, idol worship recently um, and trying to understand that in our modern context. And I think that we're making idols out of our traditions at times. Mm where we will have these structures that give us such power uh, and give us such great transformation. Um, but oftentimes we look back and when we see the transformation, we celebrate you know, the joy that that brought about, we begin to say, man, that tradition did so much. Mm. And so the challenge has been stripping that away and pointing back to the source of that transformation, which we want to recognize as Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus was a part of that, part of the construction of that process. Um, and gives us the opportunity to use our creativity to construct church boards and committees and leadership systems, whatever, whatever it is, in the way that the way that we feel best. Mm. But in that, we lose ourselves when we forget to put the power back on Jesus. Mm. So this church does a really wonderful job of doing that. Yeah. But my challenge has been, you know, in in the moments when people talk about the past, especially in my youth ministry pointing them back to Jesus um, and recognizing that when we do something new, it doesn't necessarily matter that it's not the same as that which we have done before. When it's grounded in Jesus, we believe that it will continue to have the same transformation that it always has. That's beautiful. I love that. What would you say are your favorite parts about what you do right now? I mean, I, I have lots of favorite parts about my job. I, I love, I love coming into the office. I love having a place that I can call my own. You know, mm-hmm. I walk in um, every day of the week and I look around and I, I see the space that, you know, is a little messy and a little cluttered, but um, is a space in which I've found a lot of, a lot of sanctuary and had a lot of wonderful moments with God. And so mm-hmm. from that, there have been so many aspects of this job that have challenged me and pushed me to be, to be so much more in tune to that, which Jesus has and less in tune to that, which I have. So, the youth ministry obviously is the thing that I could talk about the most because it's what I'm most involved in. You know, I, I preach every Wednesday, I teach every Sunday morning. Um, we've got events at least once a month. It's it's so much a part of my life. Mm. But I think what brings me even more joy um, is the ways in which I get to interact in the rest of the church. So there, there often the mistake that is made by pastors is they'll come in and you know this conversation is huge especially in the church of nazarene right now about siloed ministry Mm. everybody knows that word and everybody says they love that word even though we don't all understand what it means when we say siloed ministry we're obviously talking about people that have accepted a position um, accepted a a role in a church you know paid or not paid whatever it is and then they struggle to work outside of that yeah so when i say i'm a youth pastor 
the challenge would then be if an issue arises in our children's ministry or in our Sunday morning, I say, ah, it's not my problem. It's not my ministry. Why would I do that? Yeah. And so one of the great things that I've been able to do is be a part of things outside of the Wednesday and Sunday morning, Mm. small groups with the youth group. Um, I get to participate on our worship team. I get to play in our band, and I love doing that. I love leading our congregation in worship on Sundays. Mm. Um, I've been able to teach other classes. I've been able to preach on Sunday mornings. I've been able to preach to our Spanish congregation. I've, I've been very blessed to have um, some wonderful mentors here that have have brought me into other areas. Uh, one of the first things I did when I got here, I went to our men's breakfast, which you know some people joke we can call our old men's breakfast. You know, it's the like. <laughs> 7.30 a.m., Saturday morning breakfast, every church has something like it mm. that nobody under the age of 30 would show up to because we don't wake up at 7.30 on a Saturday morning. <laughs> sure. Um, but I walked in that room, and, like, the first time that I walked in, people took a double take. Like, what are you doing here? Mm. You know, like, and immediately from that moment, I was brought into this community of people that were way older than me. Um, and it's to the point now when I miss one, either for a youth event or I just really want to sleep in and don't want to go, I get harassed about it the next Sunday morning um, in a joking, loving way. They say, you know, oh, we really did miss you. We love for you to be there. So I have the opportunity to sit in, you know, in the conversation as so much more than just the youth pastor now. Mm. It, is, it has been on my heart to call myself, you know, pastor of this church just in the same way that um, our other pastors do. Uh, it's one of the challenges that youth pastors face often is that, we're called just the youth pastor right? in, in two different ways. So first, in a, you are less than, um, mm. which we just have to get over because that's the way that people are. People, rega- regardless of where they come from, they're gonna, there's always going to be people that think that. Yeah. I had to let that go a long time ago. But in the other way, they, people say, you're the youth pastor, so you are in charge of the youth. And therefore, create disconnect between you and them. Mm. And so I realized that it was going to be a lot of work if our older adults were ever going to view me as a pastor. Yeah. Um, and I still have a lot of work to go. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot more time needs to be spent. But I realized that those conversations are what is providing the most value for even my youth ministry. Mm. You know, as I create a relationship with 75 year old man in our church, then I can bring him into a conversation and say, hey, you know, John, why don't you tell my why don't you tell Susie about the way in which God transformed you mm. 70 years ago? Yeah. You know, why don't you tell tell these students about the ways in which God has moved in your life and uh, the value of being faithful to him throughout the years? And so time spent outside my youth ministry is actually the most beneficial to my youth ministry. Man, that's fabulous. I, I love that insight. Do you do you have more to say? Do you want to talk about intergenerational ministry, I feel like you're right. Like we are siloed and, um, in a lot of context struggle to have that overlap. What, what else are you doing there that looks intergenerational? Well, you know, I would, I would be lying to sit here and say that our church has figured it out. Yeah. In no way, shape or form have we figured out intergenerational ministry, but we're starting to have the conversation. So the first thing I would say to anybody listening is it takes a lot of time. Mm. Um, you know, I've only been here two years, and so I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I have made just gigantic strides. Uh, I, I talk about my church in a very positive context, um, but I also recognize the ways in which we have room to grow. So intergenerational ministry, like as we would define it, is, is more than just having every generation in your church. But it's your generations interacting with each other. Um, yeah. it's, your, it's your 75-year-old ladies like interacting with your 14-year-old guys and, mm-hmm. and just telling them, like, 
um, hey, like w- here's what here's what women would expect in a godly man, and encouraging them to continue to grow in that faith and um, become good husbands someday. Or it looks like our uh, our senior adults coming and playing board games with our youth ministry some nights. Mm-hmm. And so these are these are long term goals that I think all of us should have in our ministry that changes context to context. But one of the things that we're trying to do right now is we're leading a mission trip next summer that we've done age group mission trips for a long time, but we've never done intergenerational mission trips. Yeah, We're going to try to go with uh, Encuentro next summer to Guatemala City. Mm. We're asking ourselves the question, what is the value in a 60-year-old you know, army veteran like digging holes in the ground with a, with a 14-year-old girl in her mm. youth ministry? Like, mm. is, there, is there some sort of value in that interaction um, that will then transcend into the way that our church continues to grow together? Mm. And we want to say yes, that there is value in that. We have adopted the siloed ministry concept uh, because we we wanted to create spaces in which we could feel very comfortable to grow, and so it it came out of a very a very natural reaction. Hmm. The word you know the word teenager wasn't even adopted until like the early 1920s, and so in that we but we were doing that because we wanted to identify this demographic and say okay now we're going to create space for you. So we have these quantifiers of ages and groups and races. And so now we're going to create space that is tailor-made for you. Mm. So a youth ministry, you know, a, a teenager walks into a room and there's bright lights and there's lots of graphics on the screen and there's fun, upbeat music. And that's all well and good because it's a space they can feel comfortable. But there's a point at which we have to then push them to something more. Mm. We have to push a student to now interact with somebody that has no idea what Snapchat is. And we'll never pull their smartphone out that struggle. It takes an hour to send a text. Yeah. Like we have to push those conversations because we have to have people, not just our students, but our older adults and our middle adults and our young adults, all, all over the board. We have to recognize that this world and this faith is about so much more than us. Mm. That was such a pivotal thing when I talked about my call was that I realized in college that faith you know, as, as Bonhoeffer would put it, is meant to be lived together. You know, it, it, it's kind of the simple concept that we all say and we all, mm, yeah, I love that. But when it comes down to it, we're not willing to do it because we're afraid that it will then push us outside of our own comfort zone or it will, it will challenge us to maybe learn a new language mm. that I can talk to my teens in a very specific way because they all use Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook and all those things. But when now I ask them to talk to a senior adult, they're like, how do I, what do I say to them? Yeah. Like, uh, what am, what am I even supposed to ask them? Yeah. And so sometimes I'll say, Hey, like, just go ask that couple how they met, you know, just go, just go ask, uh, Wayne and Wanda, whoever, you know, go, go ask them where they first met, where their first date was. Mm. And then in that, this conversation begins to happen that is foreign, um, not familiar, very uncomfortable. But then what happens two weeks later, Wayne and Wanda come to church and I say, Hey, where's, where's uh, Sally? Hmm. And then the greatest moment is when I get to step out as the youth pastor and no longer have to be there. I tell my students, like, you don't need me to be Christians. You don't need me to practice your faith. Hmm. And so the greatest moment in ministry for for ministers is when we're not needed anymore. Hmm. Convinced that on a Sunday morning, if I showed up and just sat up in our balcony in our sound booth, like my dream is that there's a point at which all of our people during our fellowship time, there are older adults and our teens are looking for each other. Yeah. You know, I, like I'm convinced that people just don't, we walk into church and we, when we see empty seats, we don't correlate that with a missing person. Mm. 
And so my hope is is always that rather than just talking about the youth ministry over on you know over in the annex building or just talking about that old that old people's group that meets on a Sunday morning you know or whatever that we begin to put names to that and say man like that's that's Glenn's class right he's teaching that or that's uh you know that's Suzanne's class she's teaching that or and teens and and adults begin to understand that there is connection between them um the cultures are totally different it's always going to be different but that we begin to understand that there's value in these different contexts shaping each other and that maybe a 17 year old girl has something to learn from a 65 year old woman mm. but maybe the opposite is true as well yeah the 65 year old woman has something to learn as well mm. i'm curious what you might say to a teenager who is wrestling with a call to ministry, um, maybe feel some sense of something, but is scared or nervous or unsure, what advice might you have for a student like that? Yeah. I mean, I, I've had the, you know, in the two years I've been here, I've had the, the pleasure of having um, a couple different students pursue call to ministry. It's been really incredible to to be a part of that process. Yeah. Not to say that I'm the one that caused it, or you know, had had little time to to be a part of it, but had had some time. So, the thing that I first recognize in ministry is that we not just have siloed our positions, but we've siloed the term of of calling or mm. ministry. And so, we obviously like recognize that ministry and church is growing in such a such a fast dynamic way and is changing all the time. Yeah. So if a student ever feels like a, a pull to do something greater for the Lord. I would get them outside of our own language to say that this is more than just being a pastor. This can be more than, you know, even working in a church. But a calling is something that we all experience at some point. Mm. And so first just helping them recognize um, what it means to live missionally. Yeah. So getting them in tune with, you know, from the very beginning of Scripture, God's mission was redemption and reconciliation. Mm. So helping them deal with their own personal struggles and realizing that, one of the great things about our Wesleyan faith is that it teaches us that we are to find redemption in the brokenness and not escape from the brokenness. Yeah. Um, that it's not about just flying away and going to heaven, but it's about finding redemption in the broken situations. Hmm. So we're, we, we begin with that. And then as we find healing in those situations in divorce and broken you know, family relationships or uh, in issues with siblings or friends or things like that, there begins to be some clarity that I would then help help students walk through um, to understand then who they are as people um, and then how how that could connect to the world. Hmm. You know, like we would always hear in college that where where your greatest passion meets the world's greatest need. Like, what is what? Who are you as a person? Who have you been created to be? And how does that line up? Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not about just going off and doing the thing that God wants done. It's about going off and doing the thing that God wants you to do. Mm. Um, so if you're a very talented artist, becoming in tune with God's mission looks like pursuing that talent. Yeah. If you're a very talented musician, it looks like pouring gasoline on that fire, you know, and, and building it to something great. Um, if you're not a talented orator, then I don't know if God's always going to call you to be a pastor. Yeah. I think people are afraid to follow God's call because the classic excuse is, oh, I just don't want to go to Africa. <laughs> I just don't want to be called off to some random place. But I tell students all the time, like, God has created us unique mm-hmm. and, in, and created each and every one of us with the talents that we have. Mm. 
And so is going to continue to shape us and push us and challenge us. But I want you to discover who you are as a person, who you have created, been created to be. So then in that, we can find what God has for us in a much more clear way. That's great. Um, so the last question I ask everybody is, what inspires you to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here? You know, I, I had this conversation with so many people so often. Um, this context down here is about half Nazarene and half not. Like we, Church of Nazarene is pretty unknown reality in, in South Texas. Uh, we're one Nazarene church in, uh, in a very large city. Yeah. With some kind of in the outlying areas. But the reason that I stay with the Church of the Nazarene is because I see so much hope mm-hmm. in not just their theology, but in the way that we practice ministry. Yeah. The idea of redemption and reconciliation is is just the foundation. It, it's what it's what propelled me forward um, to look back on my life and say, my parents got divorced. I had low self image. Um, I had issues with you know friends and family all across the board. Mm. So for me to look back on that and say, yeah, there's no hope. Like God's gonna do something great somewhere later, and I'm excited to go off and do that is just such cheap theology. Hmm. It's just, it's, it's cowardice to say, yeah, I, and it limits God. So for the church of Nazarene to be able to say, yeah, I see that broken situation. I see those down and out people, those you know, women and children that we started with uh, like over a hundred years ago yeah. to say that is a broken situation. We don't just believe that they can find hope somewhere else. We believe they can find hope where they are. Mm. And we believe so much in the incarnation that we believe that God will come down to the place where they are. And so I stick with the Church of Nazarene just for that simple reason that this denomination looks at places that are broken. And rather than throwing life preservers and pulling people away, it, it goes to those places. Mm. It, it lives with people. It, it is with people. Yeah. Um, and so I find myself challenged every day when I see students that are hurting and broken and people in our city that are hurting and broken in Austin. Um, and I recognize that I could look at that and say, oh, I just need to get you to church. Like, I just need to throw you a life preserver and pull you in. But mm. that historically has never done good. It's maybe given us more numbers on our roster, but it's not created salvation or it's not created redemption in people's lives. Yeah. So the challenge then for me is just going and sitting with somebody. And learning their stories, even if it's 10 miles away from my church, even if it's on the other side of the world, you know, being, being able to go to General Assembly for the first time um, this summer was so encouraging for me to see people that were so committing to just being with people. Mm. That's great. If, if somebody had a question for you or they wanted to reach out to you, get in touch with you, um, where could they reach you? How can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would love to continue this conversation with anybody that would be that would be interested or willing. Uh, my email is Sacken Youth. It's S A C N Youth at gmail dot com. It's South Austin Church of Nazarene. Um, you're more than welcome to email me, and I'd love to I'd love to talk with anybody that would be interested. Um, and and this this you know the foundation of this show is conversation is recognizing that something doesn't change in one sermon or one lesson or one week of transformation. It's it's all in the conversation because we know that ministry is fluid and yeah. changes every day. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time um, to be on the show. We appreciate you coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me.